Star Wars Legacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all things podcasts, movies, music, media, and more, head on over to cageclub.me or like, subscribe, and follow on all of your favorite social media and podcasting services. ForceLegacy.html. Yay. I'm having a really great time with Clone Wars because even when I'm not having the best time with Clone Wars, I'm having a great time in my group chats about it with <laughs> some of the other people on the network having a great time with contributors like Steven and Kyle, Dylan and Jonah, everybody sort of talking about it, all kind of keeping up with it. And you know, I finally found a run of episodes in a row where I'm just so excited. I was like, guys, and then this thing and then that thing. I love this saltine woman and I love the way the dark saber just sort of goes in the background all the time like some sort of drunk wookie uh, there was just so much to love even when there's things that are frustrating about this watch there has definitely always been something to love about it and i feel like that is only increasing as time goes on which is a really good sign and one of the things that i think we've genuinely maintained has been a huge boon to this show has been its use of dynamic new jedi and i'm sure for many fans of the expanded universe a number of these jedi are not new i know that many of them are interpretations or iterations of characters that had already existed in the comics or the novels and i'm so glad for those fans getting to see these tremendous interpretations of these characters i find each jedi is better than the last and i thought the best character they introduced in quite a while was master sanube now i know i'm getting a little ahead of myself but i just thought master sanube was everything i love about star wars in a fun clever magical little package Ugh, it was great yeah we saw a few cool new things over the course of these episodes we saw a bunch of of New Jedi and got to know them. We saw the first detailed focus on the planet Mandalore in screen canon. That was really cool. And McGay Bear Husband showed up. What's up, John? John Favreau? Yeah. We cannot get away from that guy. And who would want to? When John Favreau enters your fandom, things just get better. Look at how it gave us the Marvel movies. Look at what he did for Star Wars with The Mandalorian. And just think what Zathura did for Jumanji. But before we can get to the first appearance of John Favreau and the first appearance of the Dark Saber. <laughs> We actually have some interesting information about the first episode we'll be discussing here. I'm so excited to get to this one. We get the greedy teamy, and I just love it so much. Uh, excited. In this episode, we will be discussing the Star Wars Clone Wars chronological episode listings 36 through 41. Up first is season two, episode nine, Grievous Intrigue, which was directed by Clone Wars veteran Giancarlo Volpe and was written by Ben Edlund, creator of, of the, the tick. tick yeah like that ben ed oh my gosh yeah what a humongously prolific guy who's contributed to so many sci-fi genres I firefly angel created the tick which of course means he's connected to both the original animated version the live action adaptation the remake of the live action adaptation that's really cool i hadn't caught that thanks for bringing that up yeah i actually didn't know that he was so involved with so many whedon projects he co-wrote titan ae with him uh he 
wrote the Janestown episode of Firefly, along with one of the Held episodes, Trash. He wrote the ARC penultimate episode in Season 4 of Angel, and then several of Season 5, including co-writing and directing classic episode Smile Time. That was really cool to learn. It was one of the things that when the tick got canceled, Whedon was like, oh, no, mine, 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 mine. Give me my friend back. I'll be real, I didn't find this episode to be the most special of this batch, so for as excited as I was to learn all this about this writer, this episode wasn't the one that stood out the most to me of the six once we got through them all, but it was still a really great episode, and the first example of this run of us meeting and learning about new Jedis. I don't remember really learning or seeing much of Master Koth or Master Galia before this episode. I don't know about you. No, that's actually part of my note. I say that Koth is amazing. Galia is incredible. I was desperate to learn their names even because sometimes everything in the heat of war moves a little bit too fast. And so you miss out on some things like their names. And I'm always like, Kevin, wait, what was that? I don't want to rewind on Disney Plus. Damn it. Fine. And I just wind up being like the smaller other new Jedi. This episode also for me really highlighted both how you can continue to keep Jedi choreography fresh because the battle scene between Master Koth and his assailants really felt like it had some stuff that we hadn't seen before. The part where he smashes someone into a window, like, that was a really fresh take. And I also really liked the sequence of him using hand signals to communicate to the other Jedi. There's a deleted scene from episode 3 where Obi-Wan and Anakin basically use baseball signals to communicate things to each other. Maybe that's episode 1 in Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon. I don't know, but it's some in the prequels and I feel like this was a really good nod to that in a way that didn't make it silly you're just taking all the words out of my mouth I had written down that I thought that the choreography on these action sequences were unparalleled the best that we've seen so far and I specifically wrote down that I thought that the Jedi having hand signals is very in line with the Jedi who would sometimes I'm sure just for fucking shiggles be like no now today Padwans you can only communicate with your fingers the force always has fingers and then you know you've got some sort of like giant slug padawan who's like i literally don't have fingers and they're like fuck you fuck you man figure it out which isn't to say that there weren't pratfalls in this episode i couldn't really follow the name of the planet for a while so i was just calling it planet salakadula menchikabula i also early on in the episode had written a note commenting that people just love carving giant comical circular holes in metal in this galaxy and then somebody literally did it for a second time in this episode just further proving my point kind of like giant circles in star wars or flamethrowers in the alien universe kind of like a a touchstone of specifically the star wars universe and as such sort of like any magical destiny frequently magical girl or special boy stories involve this idea where there's a protective older figure right at the start of star wars the matchup is essentially obi-wan versus vader we don't understand their ages that vader is roughly halfway between obi-wan and luke we don't know that but what we we understand is that from the outset it's luke versus no one really what luke versus tarkin he's going to be defeated by osteoporosis i'm not concerned there so in the first movie we believe that it's vader versus obi-wan and then it becomes vader versus luke and in order to make luke and vader equals they had to create somebody above vader now you know i'm not saying necessarily that that's the origin of the emperor but 
in terms of a storytelling technique, when you start Harry Potter, you believe that it's going to, on some level, be Harry versus Draco and Voldemort versus Dumbledore, even though the ultimate truth is that it must be Harry versus Voldemort. Here, you're given so many dynamic Sith and clever villains that I don't ever find myself like, oh, well, this person's that person's bad guy. I probably do think of Grievous as kind of like a little bit more on the level of Obi-Wan, but I love the way Obi-Wan and Ventress are sexy together. And I wonder if that's even influenced by having seen episode three and knowing that those two are the ones who are going to ultimately have the showdown. And to take that even further, I wonder if that is in part on the producers themselves developing that relationship between them because of the film. So the only reason that we would even have any perception that Grievous and Obi-Wan are specifically at odds is because of things that already came. The other thing that might feed into that is there's a line where Grievous says, where Kenobi is, Skywalker is never far behind, which... I guess could at least imply that the two of them are frequently at odds as of this episode. So whether or not it's just us creating the projected context for it, they're at least trying to help our minds along with that. And I appreciate that. Grievous' escape from the Republic forces leads directly into the next episode, Season 2, Episode 10, The Deserter, written by Carl Ellsworth, who wrote the episode we discussed previously, Bounty Hunters, and directed by Robert Dalva. This episode gave me a character that I just like fell madly in love with and then immediately kind of found out would never come back. Okay, follow me on this. The character of Cut Laquane who is a deserter clone, who I don't know that he's a deserter. I mean, he was genetically engineered into a war. He never had the choice of signing up. I wouldn't call him a deserter. I would call him a person with free will. I mean, from our perspective, yes. From their perspective, technically he is a deserter, but I think that is part of the point of the episode to illustrate the fact that the clones are treated as objects. And this is a human being who said, I don't want to be treated like an object. So follow me on this. There's an episode in the sixth season of The Golden Girls where Martin Mull just can't handle the 60s and becomes a recluse. And Dorothy becomes his Meals on Wheels lady. And I kind of think Cut Quain is like the Gen X version of the 60s recluse. I just don't want war. I just want to have hot sex with my nice wife and live here on my farm. And like, that's why Hawkeye has essentially the same story. There's this idea that the new form of like abstaining from like that that new form of like the 60s washout kind of guy is the going off the grid farm ex-spy and i just think it's really interesting that this is becoming a trope everybody just wants a farm and some kids i was really fascinated by the introduction of a character like Cut Laquain, and then even more fascinated when I learned that he's never going to appear or even be mentioned again, re- really. He'll eventually be mentioned in the Chuck Wendig Force Awakens lead-up novel, Aftermath, of all places. I was fascinated by that. I was also really confused by this character at first, like to the point of annoyance, because I didn't understand how these kids could be his kids. I don't think they specifically say anywhere in the episode, but in researching the character, it became clear that they were his adopted children. The only reason I had a problem with it is that there is no amount of time for those children to have grown up. I love 
him being an adopted father to them, and I love them just calling him daddy. The moment that little girl said, you look just like my daddy, I was like, oh, her dad's a clone. I would not have been able to sit with the idea of them being his biological children. There is not enough time for them to have grown. They're already doing everything they can to fuck with me in the fact that this war is only supposed to take place over three years. And that was something I kind of wanted to bring up. There was kind of a magic to the fact that things would come out over time. On Buffy, in season five, Tara is temporarily affected by Glory's abilities and Willow works to restore her. Reasonably speaking, Tara could have only been injured for like 36 hours, maybe maybe three full days. A week at the most. And so it's not like, and I'm not saying that there's any amount of time where your mind being impacted is okay, but they kind of make it seem like it's been the five or six weeks of live airtime. How long is the time spread from in-universe, from Star Wars A New Hope to Jedi? How long is Luke actually a part of the, the Rebellion that it's even a thing? About five years. Yeah, so the great spanning of time, the great epic that is Star Wars is what, half the length of the prequels? Something like that, yeah. So when you try and put some of this stuff in the perspective of time, you wind up stuck in these unfortunate dates and they gotta work as hard as they can. But something like thinking that these were his biological kids really did pull me out of it. And so knowing that they are his adoptive kids, that does help because the timeline on a war matter. Yeah, exactly. It's just the timeline that I was really concerned about. It undermines the efficacy of the story if I'm thinking those can't be his kids. They were adorable children though i however never really enjoy the conceit of we're just investigating this egg that fell from the sky oops we accidentally activated a fuck ton of kill droids like i get that you just wanted a third act but i think there are better ways that it could have been produced maria rambau also gets a farm Overall, I really enjoyed this episode. I was intrigued by the character. I'm disappointed that we won't see him again, but I hope he is indicative of, much like how we are discovering, more Jedis survived the Jedi Purge than we thought. There are perhaps more clone defectors out there than we thought. I'd like it. And then this one time, this girl, Ahsoka, she lost her lightsaber. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The next episode that we'll be discussing, Season 2, Episode 11, Lightsaber Lost, written by Drew Z. Greenberg and directed by Giancarlo Volpe. I, well, first of all, was absolutely shiggled as we were watching this episode and during the opening narration, they played a clip from an episode that technically, chronologically, has not come yet. Nico's favorite dude with the hat pointing a gun at Padme and Bail Organa. That clip did not happen chronologically, and that's part of why doing this whole out-of-order thing is so weird and confusing, but alright guys, go off. The second thing I noted when we started this, even if originally based off of the title, was so we are 33 episodes of Clone Wars in, in terms of airing, and they are just now getting to a story where Ahsoka loses her lightsaber. On the one hand, I feel like that's something that should 
probably have come much earlier in her training, but on the other hand, with the way that production has developed since the show began, I'm probably more glad that it was done here instead. And for her personal development, if she had lost it earlier than this, she couldn't have retrieved it. But instead, we got more awesomeness from the librarian, Jocasta, we got my precious master, Sanube, who I loved, and we got probably my favorite appearance of Palpatine ever. It was bizarre. There's this scene where Ahsoka's holding onto a giant screen thingy, and Palpatine's like, guys, please stop harassing the Jedi. They are doing this for power. I don't like that you think that. There are actually a bunch of really interesting Easter eggs in the background of this episode that I found fascinating. The first that we noticed was obviously, as you say, the Palpatine speech talking about how this isn't a Jedi power grab. Don't worry. It's really cool to see seeds of dissent being sown to further explain how people could so easily turn on the Jedi at the end of the war. There were a bunch of other interesting things hidden in the background, though. There was an ad for Star Tours. Love it. One of the posters in the background was advertising tours to Glee Anselm. There is also a criminal file for a character named Bria Toneka on the computer screen that Jocasta knew was using. She is a very, very, very minor background character who appeared in the cantina scene in episode four. She's the lady with the braids who is seen with an identical sister and... The wanted ad says last seen on Coruscant wanted for murder. This character doesn't appear like in much of anything. It's just really cool that characters who make such a lasting visual impression can keep popping up in different places throughout this universe. That really adds a layer to this because one of the things about this episode is that it's kind of kind of like a basic crime caper. Her thing is stolen. She has to get into the CD underworld with help and get it back. There's mercs. There's traitors. It's a pretty straightforward story. There were elements that I think that perhaps James Gunn saw before he worked on the first Guardians movie. Ah. Just really great visuals to draw from. And I really liked it. And just so much of what they paid homage to with this episode was lovely. And there was something great about seeing the seediness of the city. Apparently the film is based on the classic Kurosawa film, Stray Dog. I'm not as familiar with Kurosawa's work, but that's really cool. This episode did really highlight an issue that we have ongoingly with the Jedi, though. There are, I can't even begin to count, so many instances where we practically screamed at the screen, why is Ahsoka not just using the Force to grab her lightsaber back? And it's just something that really bugs me. The Jedi are able to use the Force to keep themselves from, like, falling to their death. And they can throw people around and sometimes pick up an entire ship. Why is she not able to pull her lightsaber back from this person? Even if it ended up destroying the lightsaber. The whole point is you don't want this murder weapon in someone else's hand. We've seen that Anakin has destroyed multiple lightsabers. You can build a new one. It's not great when you destroy it, but isn't it better than having it in the hands of a criminal? And, you know, I really like that you brought up that Anakin has destroyed several because I kept thinking, is it like, like, can you not get another one? Like, can you not just go down to, like, cast operations and just be like, hi, $10 for a new lightsaber ID, thanks? 
I imagine it's embarrassing to have to go back to Ilum and get a new kyber crystal, especially when you've been a Padawan for a while already, but... Mace Windu just shaking his head at you the entire way on the transport. Which is fine. Is that not better than letting a mercenary out there have a fucking kill weapon? You know, the two villains in this episode were kind of light on story, a little bit thin, didn't do much for me, but I kind of sort of maybe thought that the end was cute because it's nice to see a Jedi Padawan um, have a nice interact, make nice with the younglings. Yeah, that was cute. I really liked the character of Master Sanub. Sometimes he was a little obnoxious, but overall turned out to be really great. I think there are a lot of shades of Yoda in that character. I also thought it was really cool that Pablo Hidalgo posted on Twitter for for those talking about the subject, note that Cassie Cryer and Ione Marcy were written as a couple in a relationship. So even though they are predominantly coded, which is, of course, deeply frustrating still, these are two intended queer characters in the Star Wars universe. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the club. And if you guys are done being bounty hunters or mercs or whatever you are, we'll take you over here. Yeah. Are they mercs or bounty hunters? Is this more bounty hunter rising that we are promised with season two? Or I don't even know. Or are these just some mercs with yeast? Oh, jeez. And we're moving on. We come now to a three-part arc that opens with Season 2, Episode 12, The Mandalore Plot, written by Melinda Sue. This is her second and final episode, and directed by Kyle Dunleavy. We already watched his episode Cat and Mouse first, but this is, in production, his first aired episode. I love Princess Saltine of the Moulin Rouge. She is everything, and the back of her head is a liar, but not that she's a liar. She's got a liar on the back of her head. So the first thing that I want to do is read a quote from Dave Filoni where he says, this is how George has always envisioned the Mandalorians. Of course, people immediately think of the iconic Fett armor because that's all we've had to go on for so many years. It's mysterious and we've built up that mystique as fans. But Boba and Jango Fett aren't necessarily what I would consider accurate representatives of the Mando culture. They're bounty hunters and out Outlaws. Totally wrote. If you go way back to the original concepts, the Mandalorians were a group of super commando troops. It's only now that George is really bringing that to the screen. They're in the series because we wanted to define their culture to explore the foundations of this warrior faction. Which I I really appreciated that they immediately accounted for the fact that Jango Fett is not representative of Mandalorian culture. And I appreciate that something that so severely upends a fandom's perception of Star Wars lore came ages before Disney took over and was specifically directly influenced by George's original vision for that region. Agreed. And if I can be honest, I love what Mandalorians have become between this and the TV show. Whereas I don't care for the Fets other than, by goodness, is that gentleman very attractive? I thought that this was a really interesting culture. I mean, the term Death Watch, like Death Watch, guys, really? No, 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 no. That is not a reasonable name for a political group. Death Watch, no, no, no. But everything else about this really genuinely worked for me. And honestly, I loved Satine. I thought it was really interesting that she kept being like, 
Obi. I was like, oh, Darth. I liked Satine a lot. Mostly, I got over the whole pacifist thing real quick. I'm not necessarily someone who hyper advocates for violence, but I think that she speaks from an enormous place of privilege in regards to her pacifistic stance. I also want to state on record that it is Henry Gilroy who came up with the character's name. Dave Filoni said he did not realize where it came from initially and has said that he still wants to question Gilroy about that because quote I'm like come on really I mean out of all the names really it's pretty weird I'll give you that I do kind of agree I was like the biggest Moulin Rouge fan in high school so you would think that I would have been elated that they named this character for the Moulin Rouge character but um no maybe if it had been something sounding kind of like Satine in that classic George Lucas fashion but I think it's a little too directly on the nose for me personally. Like, I don't need them writing a love interest onto Picard named Magneto. You know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. I really enjoyed the introduction of John Favreau's pre-Vizsla character. I immediately recognized his voice, and I love the fact that his character is the first that we canonically see wield the Darksaber. That adds a completely new layer to its live-action debut in John Favreau's The Mandalorian. And you called it right away. You were just immediately like, nope, it's John Favreau. What a strong voice. And you're right. Him being in the first Darksaber episode ever, and then being the guy to introduce the Darksaber, I really loved this episode. I love the Concordia moon. The dude that goes splatty sapuku right off of that balcony is just like, bye-bye. Oh my god, right? So many deaths and murders in this kid's cartoon show. I really, really thought this was a great episode. It kicked off a trilogy of episodes that I thought was tremendous, and I just love Satine. It turned out way better than I thought it would be at the beginning. I think it started kind of slow, but then once you really get into the purpose of the episode, you know, it's, it's, as we you said really the first part of a three-part arc so you can't really expect too much from an introduction like that i think the things that stood out to me most were number one the unique sound and visual trail on the dark saber really did make it seem like something special not a footnote number two it's weird but i kind of love that the concordian mandalorians were like no we have death procedures we want the body there is something very humanizing about reminding us about death ceremony in a universe it's that, that necropolin element, that the world of the dead, it's something that a lot of fiction willing to deal with the metaphysical does to such powerful end when it's done well. I agree. It's such an important part of society. I was reading recently about the cultural portrayal of death as a personification over the centuries, and it really wasn't until the Black Plague when so many people were dying so horrifically that death itself became portrayed as a scarier, more imposing character. Before that, death was much more frequently portrayed along the lines of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, where death is a friend who is there to help ease your transition to the other side. So it's really cool to see these alien cultures, interpretations, and procedures for the death process. The middle episode of this arc is everybody's favorite trope, the whodunit on a train, season two, episode 13, Voyage of Temptation, written for the final time by Paul Dini and directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. Aw, Paul. Bye, Paul. You were a lot of fun, buddy. You know, 
I loved this episode. It had so many striking visuals. The blue clone troopers, the Meet the Robinsonsy Matrixy robots that looked like hamburgers with arms. Mm, and I really love the visual design of Satine's ship. It's very rustic and it's very classic looking. And I think it was that attention to creating unique atmospheres over and over again that is eventually what kind of won us over. Almost every one of these episodes tries to immerse us in an experience and I love being immersed in what the Star Wars universe has to offer because it always shows me some different bit I don't know it's kind of like why I love the X-Men there's a mutant for everybody it's kind of like there's a Star Wars planet for everyone there's a Jedi for everyone and there's a basic storytelling trope that Star Wars can interpret in an exciting way I loved Satine having to save Obi-Wan from getting smooch crushed and I just thought this whole thing was great I have to ask though do you think Anakin just felt so so fucking vindicated with his perception that Obi-Wan and Satine were former bone buddies. I think Anakin slept much better that night next to Padme, knowing that Obi had been, you know, playing the liar in Satine's band. Oh, because her head looks like a liar. Because her head looks like a liar, but she's not a liar. She's very honest. I also really loved her quote, Senators, I presume you are acquainted with the collection of half-truths and hyperbole known as Obi-Wan Kenobi, because that is like the best line in the entire universe. And so accurate. I was stumped once again, though, when she refers to herself as regent of 1500 systems. That's a lot of systems. That's probably too many systems for one person to be regent of. And how many systems are there in this galaxy? I'm... I'm just, I'm very thrown. Because it is overwhelming inherently how much she is then responsible for, for her to be like, why am I the target? Woman, you're in charge of 1,500 galaxy peoples. It just feels like one of those numbers that people like to say to make something sound fancy and big and space-aged and then don't really think about the consequences of what that literally means as this woman being the sole regent of 1,500 systems. I also really enjoyed some of the, like, some of the playfulness of this episode, the, you mean the scar I got after you fell and dropped me? Like, there was some playfulness, but all of that was undercut by maybe the darkest moment in the entire series so far. During the scene with Obi-Wan and Satine, where they're playing out that gambit, which, it's a little too gambity for what it is. Like, to what extent are you guys driving this? It, yeah, okay, so we were lovers. Would you have left the Jedi Order for me? Probably. And then, you know, they kick him and they get the gun and then to the score of Darth Vader's theme Anakin goes ahead and impales the dude. I love that you called it one of the darkest moments of the series so far because it's not even especially played for that apart from the fact that you know he murdered a guy it's weirdly light despite the reactions of what the fuck did you just do which I think balances the slow transition of Anakin into someone who you know handles his problems this way I do feel like Obi-Wan's plan to find out who was in control of the spider creatures is perhaps a reference to a series one episode of Doctor Who from 2005. At first, I was like, no, it can't. Oh, right. That would have come out in 2005. This came out in 2010. Knew who is old enough by now, let alone back then, that people could be making cultural references to it. Weird. And, you know, it's crazy because this is old enough that we're saying that this could have had impact on the MCU. So it's sort of this beautiful synergistic way that sci-fi continues to feed itself. 
Our last episode to discuss today is Season 2, Episode 14, Duchess of Mandalore, written by Drew Z. Greenberg and directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. Probably not my favorite of the ones we watched. No, but it's not my least favorite, at least. Huh. I think it probably was my least favorite. It was so political talky talk. There wasn't really a lot of action that wasn't, oh, I, well, who, we can't, but who should... And I feel like the only reason Padme was in this episode was because she's the only good politician that we know who we have in the main cast. The only other person they could have possibly used is probably Bail Organa. I really hope that we start to see more positive senators because I'm aware that the inception of the alliance to restore the Republic that is known as the Rebels and the Rebellion really started at the very beginning of the Empire and people thinking that this was heading in a bad direction. So I hope we do start to see anyone other than the woman we know is going to die before the rebellion can really kick off. So we will have an idea of who these players will be. Because something that really bothered me was they took Satine off the board in a lot of ways with this episode. I hope she has a future in the remaining five seasons, but I feel like a lot of her political power had to be compromised by the events of this three-parter. Also, she says Padme's name wrong. She definitely said Padme. And I was like, ooh, that's an extra syllable. I did like that I felt as if we were for the first time really seeing Palpatine's right-hand man, Maz Ameta, have some sort of role in Palpatine's rise to power. I'd already been aware through my research and study of the Star Wars universe that that character is aware of Palpatine's intentions. I can't remember if he knows that he's a Sith, probably not, but he knows that the guy is like trying to rise in power and is manipulating shit. So it was really cool to see him immediately pounce on Satine's words and use them against her to help Palpatine. I feel as if we haven't really seen a lot of Palpatine henchmen apart from the obvious ones that are the Separatists. So it's cool that we are seeing people who are working within the Republic against the Republic's interests. If for no other reason, otherwise it makes it seem like it only took Sheev in the Senate to do all of this, and it oddly took way more help, like all the Sith, to do everything else. It just seems unbalanced, so I agree. Seeing other characters come into focus and how they interact with Palpatine's quest for power, it definitely supports the narrative and makes his rise feel a little bit more clear. I'm also really curious, considering Padme's inclusion in this story and how crucial she was to thwarting Dooku and Palpatine's plans for the Republic occupation of Mandalore. At what point is he going to get tired of Padme always being the one who keeps thwarting these plans and perhaps begin to act against her? We know that she has to survive to episode three, but I don't know. She just like keeps pissing him off. I wonder if he sees Padme as necessary to his manipulations of Anakin. She can't die yet. He's not there enough. And I'm curious if we are ever going to start to see any of... Palpatine ruminating on his own machinations and these sort of things and I don't mean to say explaining to the audience why he's not going after her but like a little bit we kind of need to understand the character's motivations otherwise we don't know what the fuck's going on at all. 
And it can't just be because Natalie Portman's in the third one. That's not an in-universe logical reason. And speaking of making no fucking sense at all, so the next episode to air in production will not come chronologically until after season three, episode 11, which makes it about two or three episodes away for us. The next episode after that, season two, episode 16, was covered in our first Clone Wars episode, HTML episode 85. The next three episodes after that, season two, episodes 17 through 19, we already covered in HTML episode 91. Our next episode that we will be covering in the next installment of HTML will actually be season two, episode 20, Death Trap. And we haven't even gotten to the most convoluted out-of-order sequence of Clone Wars episodes yet. I feel like I'm trying to read 90s comics at Marvel. I'm just all over the place, and I have to get into like 85 tie-ins to understand what's going on. Kind of. But Kevin, until we return to take a look at the breadth of space that is as... Conv- I just can't... I really can't get over 220? Jesus. Until we come back to take a look at some random episodes somewhere in a galaxy far, far away. Kevin, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Really K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And you can find me on the Facebook page for this program, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action. And you can also find the super cool, super fun Kid Riot comic stories over at KidRiotComics.com. Nico, where can the folks find you? As always, you guys can find me Mondays and Thursdays here on X's for Podcast or Tuesdays here on HTML here on the Cage Club Network. Don't forget to check out my Instagram at Nico Action and I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, guys. And until we return to space, keep those kyber crystals lit. May the force be with you and also with your force ghost. Banner. Oh, wait, that's actually the outro. Yeah.